Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. Hi everyone, this is Raghu Marcus from MindPod Network, uh, and I, I'm really happy to be able to be the first person on Sharon Salzberg's podcast series to be able to hang out with her and ask a couple of questions. So uh, I have that privilege, Sharon, and I'm real happy about that. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be talking to you. So I, um, there's so much that uh, I'm thinking our listeners on the MindPod network and uh, your own uh uh, constituency, you know, so many different things uh, that people might be interested in. But uh, I do know uh, that, you know, in, in a lot of the questions that we get and a lot of the queries we get through the Mind Rolling podcast that I do and also with Ram Dass um, and some of our other friends, it, it really is about, there's a central uh, theme to to the to the questions and it, it's it's about it's kind of summed up in I don't want to join anything in particular and I don't I'm not you know I know about Buddhism I know about Hinduism I know about Sufism um, but that it, it's it's just not my uh, proclivity mm-hmm. to <laughs> to join uh, the band so to speak but on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, dealing with with all of the vicissitudes of life, and this is a very difficult world that we live in environmentally, socially, politically, uh, haves and have-nots, and, and so on. So there's a lot of stressors, and people generally want to, you know, know how to deal with those on a very practical level, I feel. I mean, that's certainly the feedback that, that we get. So I was just looking through, I don't know, I was, you know, when you're thumbing through a couple of books, and I came upon this thing that described Buddha's eightfold, noble eightfold path as a self-progression, uh, as a self-development progression. And I'm thinking, wow, that's quite a term I've never heard, you know, regarding the eightfold path, a self-development progression. And in a way, that's uh, that brought me to the thing of how about if if we get from you um, a, a, not just a practical understanding as as much as possible of the different uh, of the eight um, um, the eightfold path, but uh, also how can it be applied to our lives together t- today? Our contemporary lives, with everything that is going on, um, that that can make a difference in each person's life, and and maybe we can start. W- I mean, 
uh, right understanding, I think, is, is a nice place to start. And what do we really mean about that? <laughs> well, right understanding is the classical place to start, although it's confusing, too, because um, we tend to think of a path as something very linear, like you start at the beginning and you never go back there, you mm. know, and you just keep going till you get to the end. And my, uh, my friend, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, sometimes she calls it the eightfold dot because it's kind of circular. Mm. It's like you actually keep going round and round, but on a deeper level altogether. So in a practical way, a lot of people, even though classically the, the path starts with right understanding, in a practical way, a lot of people don't because understanding is the culmination of a lot of the work that you put into changing your life and living in a different way and looking more carefully at how things are and what causes happiness and what causes suffering. Um, so really, it should, in a way, logically be at the end, but it's also the beginning. <laughs> so mm. uh, it, it's a little confusing in the beginning, right? Understanding, um, as is classically, that's its place. Um, almost means the impetus to look more deeply. It's so easy to just go on in uh, conventional life and not um, really think deeply, like what makes me happy, suffering, uh, how can this be a better world, how can I be a better person, just kind of go on day by day. And, um, we need enough understanding so that we want to step back from what we've been told and where we've been told happiness is to be found and uh, give us a little bit of kind of audacity to investigate and explore. So right understanding in the beginning is, is really just that. It's, it's sensing that there's another way of being. It's understanding a little bit about cause and effect, that what we do probably matters, that um, instead of being this kind of nihilistic and uh, hollow as we can be about our actions, you know, it's realizing, you know, if I change the way I live, maybe it'll have some results. Hmm. So, so that understanding relates to how we can potentially even um, dream of changing or transforming our day-to-day our -day lives or our lives in general. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be, uh, and it won't likely be for everybody, um, massive. You know, it just has to be enough. Mm -hmm. And for some it is massive. It's this huge kind of turbulence that has us willing to turn over our lives completely. But for a lot of people, it just has to be enough so that we're willing to question. Mm. Well, let's move to right thought, because uh, that's certainly connected with understanding. And uh, let's talk about right thought. Uh, in a way, right thought sometimes called right intention. It's also the beginning of the experiment. It's like saying um, it's having a sense that thoughts born of greed and hatred and delusion uh, will cause suffering for ourselves and for others and thoughts born of uh, loving kindness and balance and wisdom will cause more happiness for ourselves and for others as we affect them. And so um, it's it's like a determination to make that, start making that, mm. see thoughts that are uh, really hurtful and harmful. And uh, if you were to act on them, they would just drag you down. Then 
you decide not to act on them and to see if you can let them go. And uh, when you see thoughts that are like generous thoughts, you know, I want to, I want to step out of my comfort zone and uh, spend some time with this person, generosity or, or uh, take care of this dog or mm -hmm. uh, have, a, um, you know, give someone something materially, feed somebody. Uh, then I will act on those, you know, so it's that kind of discernment. Is there also a witness part, Sharon, uh, when we talk about right thought, which is uh, where you can see motivation, where you can see how much uh, it's it's about I, me, mine, you know, and, and you start to realize that. Is, is that encompass? Does right thought encompass that witness? Yeah, because well, the only way to know what our thoughts are um, urging us to, or to see what our motivation is, whether the thought is born of greed, hatred, and delusion, or um, loving kindness and generosity and, and wisdom, is to be able to step back enough from our thoughts. Because usually it's pretty quick, you know, that process. It's like mm. thought comes and we're at the store before we know it. Or uh, I read somewhere that... Um, like the dopamine rush when we see something, say, in a catalog that we want to buy. <laughs> the dopamine rush lasts something like seven or eight minutes. So the advice this person was saying was like, wait nine minutes you know, <laughs> before you actually buy the thing to see if you still really want it or if that was just that biochemical rush. So, um, you know, so it's something like that. And you, even if it's not nine minutes, if it's, uh, just to have a pause between the thought and the action. Mm. We need some space, and we need uh, a way of stepping back and being able to look at the thought and even being able to discern what it is. Is it really generosity, or is it something else? What, uh, what particular methodology do you usually suggest uh, to people um, regarding... Um, being able to step back or take a a moment i mean you know cuz people get obviously you get so caught up in the uh visceralness of the uh especially if it's emotional or even seeing something in a catalog what 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 is the what is the step back procedure here well that that's a later uh stage or later aspect <laughs> of the Eightfold Path, which is right mindfulness. Right. Um, so once we get into <coughs> that whole kind of um, a grouping, you know, right mindfulness, concentration, and effort, which are kind of the meditative uh -huh. aspects of the path, it's about learning that skill mm -hmm. to step back, to see more clearly, to have some space, to be able to let go. Can you see, I mean, uh, so, yeah, I want to bring all of, I thought that that would be more towards, uh, you know, concentration, effort, and mindfulness uh, towards the end of this particular part of the conversation, but what what about right speech? I mean, how people, you know, that might be really difficult in today's day and age to understand. Uh, yeah, so then, you know, we enter an a aspect of the path, it's like a grouping, because these things come in groups. Um, we enter this grouping that's about how we live. You know, it's actually about our ethics and what we care about and where we're coming from, how we speak to one another, how we behave toward one another. 
because all of that is considered consequential. It's like our words actually matter. They, you know, we speak harshly to someone mm. and we don't realize it at the time, but it kind of lingers inside of us. Or I describe it sometimes as that feeling you might get if you say something really nasty about somebody and then 10 seconds later they walk into the room and you think, <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> it feels horrible. Like, what do they hear and how much do they hear? Yeah. And I'm so horrible. Mm. And, you know, it feels, we think it feels good at the time. Like, I'm so powerful and I know this thing about this person. But if we really look, it's like, ugh, it feels terrible. And so it's understanding that our, our words, like our actions, are actually consequential. They don't, unfortunately, they don't just disappear, you know, mm. into some kind of void, which we would sometimes long for. They can't, <laughs> you know. Mm. And so it starts with this idea of speech. And I think it is very difficult in our day and age it you know right speech encompasses things like not lying and not speaking harshly not being cruel with our speech um not backbiting not gossiping um and i think we live in an age particularly where we're taught that we'll feel better about ourselves if we can only put down others more if we can mm. demean others and like diminish them and um you know, and, and it's in the media, it's like you watch a reality TV show and you watch some contestant being dismissed from whatever contest it is. And it's not very nice, usually, you know, it's not like, wow, your efforts were great and we wish you luck, you know, it's like, you're, you know, yeah. you don't deserve to live, and, yeah. and, you know, and we just hear that all the time. And I think we incorporate that message. And mm. so, um, but again, this is, you know, it's like the experiment. It's like saying, it's almost like an act of creativity. I'm so used to living a certain way. I've uh, gotten habituated to speaking a certain mm. way. I'm going to make the experiment. It's not like punishing yourself or uh, being all self-righteous or weird toward others. But it's saying, I want to make this experiment. You know, I don't want to just live in a rut because I'm used to it. I want to be creative. And, and. Speech is a powerful way of doing that. Joseph Goldstein once said that, um, maybe he talked to you about this. He, he once decided um, that he was going to do this experiment for like a month or something like that, where he wasn't going to speak about a third party. If he had something to say about somebody, he'd say it to them instead. Hmm. And he said something like 95% of his speech was eliminated. <laughs> you know, he realized, look at what we usually go around oh. doing. It's just very interesting. Oh, my God. That's, that's scary. And yeah. and I, I would like to suggest as part of uh, right speech, uh, I think that also includes tonal quality because you could say something benign but with a certain tonal quality uh, yeah. that will have just as disastrous an effect. Uh <laughs> Uh, and we used to we used to do this when when I was uh, uh, I, I was a program director of a radio station many years ago when I met Ramdas and and we it was in Montreal and we had like the FCC a CRTC it was called and you know you could not swear this is an this is an actually an example of the opposite of using a tonal quality. And a really bad word, or as far as the airwaves are concerned, and uh, it just didn't have the effect. So we would get on, and we would say, you know, say these four-letter words in the most <laughs> soft and wonderful manner, and and <laughs> never ever got a complaint. 
Really? Okay. Never. <laughs> and so, uh, so certainly right speech doesn't include, the, you know, because it, all of you out there that have relationships, and, and it can be just friendships, it doesn't have to be man, man, woman, woman, man, woman, any of that, any relationship, and you you know, you become aggravated and you use a certain tone with that person. It's demeaning, it's this, it's that, and um, uh, I think marriage does produce a lot more of that material, and, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I won't admit to anything because uh, Sharon is very friendly with my wife. But That's right. I see. Okay. I'm calling as soon as we're done. Yeah. Do you know what he said? Yeah, exactly. Um, Let's talk about right livelihood, actually, at this point. Um, that's also maybe something not so easy in this day and age because of, of the lack of jobs. Yeah. It's true. Like, I always found that intriguing that if the Buddha was only going to choose eight things that he put livelihood in there, mm. you know, which elevates it to a certain level of importance. Like, he's saying, these are the eight things you need to get together. Mm to be free, to have a genuine path to liberation and livelihood is in there. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. it's very interesting. And uh, it is hard. I mean, uh, you know, the Buddha, in terms of his direct teaching, was speaking in a time, in a culture. And uh, we're living in a different time, in a different culture. And so we need to look deeply and really ponder and try to understand together what this might mean. You know, it's one thing to say no killing uh, in terms of livelihood, um, you know, but what does it mean if you feel you're in some exploitative industry or you, you can't get another job or you feel mm -hmm. you can't get another job or you, you feel some kind of almost moral wounding in terms of what you need to do at work to, get by and um you know it could be sleazy it could be lying it could be uh you know it's a very difficult question i think it's just partly what's important is understanding that our livelihood is an important thing in our path to liberation it too is not it's just awfully hard you know we tend to be so fragmented in our thinking that we forget that we uh, you know, our lives are really seamless. It's very hard to tell lies all week long at work and then sit down to seek the truth on yeah. Saturday, you know, when you're on mm. retreat, that what we do at that job is, is going to be consequential. It's going to affect our inner life and our state of peace and joy or the opposite. And so, um, you know, and, and that's why, like, I've discovered a lot of this in touring around with this book, Real Happiness at Work, because... I constantly hear from people who are really struggling with whatever work they may be doing. And I also hear lots of stories of resilience and people finding meaning. And uh, especially, it's like the kind of meaning you can find in a job, even if you don't feel like it's the job of your dreams, if you resolve, say, to be kind to everybody you encounter, mm. to try to spread compassion, to uh, listen deeply to people. Um, you know, I've heard those stories too, which are very inspiring. Yeah, that um, and that everybody th that's listening, 
that gives a wonderful twist and makes it way more relevant to us uh, today. It's not about you have to have a job that is going to save the world, right? That's not right livelihood. And and Sharon, that's wonderful the way you put this and to be able to carry into everything you're doing with that kind of uh, sentiment and mentality of it's us and it's not me and I got to get through today. Things start to just change. And as they change, even other opportunities seem to come up, um, you know, and it's uh, similar to, uh, I just read something about generosity. Uh, it's, they're proving when people are generous, uh, it there is a comeback, you know. Some guy did some kind of crazy scientific thing on that. So I think that that's great. I, I'm really happy um, of your uh, explanation of, of right livelihood. Um, Let's see. So what we have left is is right action, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, which I'd love to say for left. So let's let's talk about right action. I think at this point, right action is based on that same principle that our it's an understanding that our lives are seamless, and that if we um, live recklessly, if we don't care who we hurt, if we, I mean. Uh, in the context in which you set up this um, discussion to begin with, this conversation, you know, if we uh, live recklessly on this earth and we don't care about the resources that we use, and um, then that too is consequential. It affects our inner life. It affects our heart, even if we can't see it at the time. Once you get involved in deep introspection, you do see it. You see how alienated you are from your community, from your family, from your planet, whatever it is. And, mm. you know, so that's why there are things like um, the precept, which is uh, don't take that which has not been offered, which in you know common description is don't steal, is often described as well as don't take more than you need. If you live in a way that you're using more resources than you need, it's harming others. And if you harm others, you harm yourself, inevitably. Uh, the that particular concept of don't take more than what you need, we have, uh, unfortunately, the opposite going on in our culture, in, in our world, uh, across the board. Um, and, uh, you know, not to get into a deep philosophical conversation about it, but uh, my own personal belief around it is that I get right action here is you can only take that internal reaction yourself, action yourself to uh, understand that there we all need to do something about this world that we're in and certainly um, not uh, using up more resources. Uh, and I'm, a, you know, as I said that, flashed through my head in that moment, Sharon, my car. I yeah. just got another car and it was easy for me to trade in. I had a Jeep and I traded it in to a, you know, a, a newer one. And, you know, it was all right in terms of the finances and so on and so forth. And then I remember looking at it and it had a little sign uh, and it said, Hemi, the engine it was a Hemi. Hemi, I think is a Hemi. Cause I told 
uh, Christian Das actually, he said, "Oh yeah, that that ought to that ought to be a big time gas guzzler you got going there." <laughs> <laughs> and here it is, you know. And I'm saying this thing, and my awareness level, uh, or uh, it's awareness level, it's it's desire to take the right action in that moment. No, that. I'm not thinking about it. I mean, it in the big warp and woof of things, nobody's going to give a crap, you know, that I, I get 17 miles to the gallon instead of you 25. Do? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I try. So now I'm trying, I won't drive it quite as much, uh, you know? <laughs> but, but it's those kinds of things that, uh, you know, these, these are the things we all need to pitch in, in the smallest ways. And, and and certainly that kind of thinking around right action is absolutely uh, critical in our day and age. So, yeah. Um, where are we next? Um, I, I, what about right concentration? Uh, can we talk about that for a minute? Uh, well, that moves to the grouping that's talking about meditation yeah. practice, which is the way that we make these things real, you know, like... Uh, you can have the best will in the world to uh, act in a different way or uh, let go of really harmful, destructive thinking. But unless you're mindful enough to know what you're thinking, you know, mm. or to pause before your action, it's going to stay an ideal. It's not going to be real. And that's the whole point of a path is that it's real. It's realistic. It's something we can do. It's not something just for the other guy to do and it's not something we have to defer so we have it all together in some other way and then we start you know it's starting right here and so concentration is the ability to stabilize your attention so that it's not flying all over the place quite as much as it tends to do most of us find ourselves fairly distracted or scattered and Whoop. if we sorry about that the wind and if we can only uh uh settle more get more centered then that can be the foundation for being more aware. So uh, concentration is a process of gathering our attention so that it is more stable, it's more centered. And uh, I don't know if you're, uh, you'll be seeing tons of people coming to uh, your site, uh, SharonSalzberg.com, uh, because I said there are some tools there to allow people to uh, to to get training in the practices that uh, you've been, you know, doing and teaching your, you know, your adult life. So um, s certainly take advantage of, of that, everybody. Um, so then we go to me, to the, this is the big issue, Sharon, right effort. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm just going to, uh, uh, a little anecdote here. But uh, basically, uh, Sharon's tradition is Theravadan Buddhism, but Sharon also uh, takes advantage of Tibetan Buddhism and, uh, and even uh, deigns to hang out with us sloppy bhaktis, actually, uh, and teaches with Krishnadas all the time. And uh, we, uh, you know... Our, our to, uh, Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, who is, uh, as some of you uh, may know through our other podcast, is uh, Ram Das's guru and my guru, Krishna Das's, and, and is close to Sharon as well. 
and uh, at one point, uh, so we'd hang out with him in uh, in this ashram in the foothills of the Himalayas, and at uh, you know, after we had been there, I don't know, six months or something, uh, our sadhana, our day-to-day practice, right, <laughs> was basically we'd hang out with him and lap that up as much as possible. Uh, we'd wander around, you know, the hillsides uh, just aimlessly. We had nowhere to go. Uh, we were smoking beaties, little Indian cigarettes and uh, or pot, whatever. Uh, we were doing a lot of sleeping, a lot of eating, and a lot of gossiping. So he said, you people, this is your yoga, the six-limb yoga. Walking aimlessly about, gossiping, smoking, eating, sleeping. But <laughs> to this day, this is, uh, you know, this is our M.O., okay? And so now we've all done intense practices at different times, you know, with, with Sharon and with other Buddhist teachers and so on. And, uh, you know, I think we've managed to, uh, for some of us, to create some kind of stability in, in that practice. But I'd have to say that we... We all look askance a little bit at at effort. It, it is a pregnant word uh, in which we feel. Uh, I'm saying we. I. I. I feel <laughs> like uh, people can really go astray on effort uh, and identify with that effort. Of course, that's always the, the issue. Can you talk about right effort as against <laughs> wrong effort? <laughs> Well, I think certainly people can go astray with effort, and they can go astray probably with lack of effort too, right? Mm. Um, and you know, people can get into straining and hating their current experience and trying to overcome it and be somewhere else, which would not be right effort. On the other hand, you know, I think there's a difference between effort. Effort. There's a difference between effort and method. You know, you can have a lot of uh, practices that aren't clearly a method, although secretly I think they are, and yet uh, it takes some effort. I mean, you guys, you people were there in India. Wasn't that comfortable? I was there too. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd given up a lot. We'd given up a lot to be there uh, in terms of the material comforts we were used to. Um, even if you weren't strictly doing a method, I know uh from being such good friends with you all, you bhaktis, you know, that um, when something would happen, you would try to recast it. You know, you'd try to reframe it instead of like, this is the worst of luck, uh, you know, to maybe there's something for me to learn in this, or maybe there's an element of grace in this, or um, how can I find the love in this? Mm. Uh, How can I stay close to Maharaji through this? Right. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just like going through some miserable experience in the old way. Right. Mm-hmm. There was some effort there to to see things in a new light. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's always effort, in, but there doesn't have to be that kind of straining, judgmental, uh, self-condemning kind of effort that isn't going to lead us anywhere anyway. Mm. I guess that also it the intent part uh, I forget which um 
where we talked about intent, but I, I guess where to right intent or having that, that got to fit in with right effort, intent somehow. Um, because there has to be a motivation to actually cur- want to, the motivation is be happy, right? We want to be happy. So we want to then um, put some effort into changing our behaviors. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in, I, I think the biggest issue that, I, you know, in myself is, you know, result-oriented result effort. That's, that's, a, that's an issue. And, you know, we see many, many people in that bit of a trap. Or um, becoming such a doer. You know, I'm going to meditate uh, 20 out of the 24 hours, and then I'm <laughs> going to get there. Um, uh-huh. That that you become trapped, um, and yeah. that that effort uh, boomerangs basically. I think that's a real. Pro- I think right effort is a real problem for Westerners in general. Well, it is, and it, it it's a problem. I think in just in the way you're describing, and it's a problem in the other direction when people get, I think, enamored of a kind of pathless path. And think there's nothing I, I right. can do. And um, when I was teaching a Christian to us once, he used this saying. He said it was an old Hindu saying, something like, "The grace of God is coming down upon us all the time, like a gentle rain, but we forget to cup our hands." Mm. You know, so that's why I would maintain there's always something we need to do. Like we need to cup our hands. We need right. to listen. We need to be receptive and when you think there's nothing I need to do, um, then you don't do anything. Yeah. No, and yeah. then whatever yeah. truth is in the absolute sense, you're not receiving it. In the right. And in fact, uh, and I, I um, on an earlier podcast, uh, I mentioned this, uh, this very incident that happened that really exemplifies this more than anything. And that is uh, Ramdas in India became really, angry at all the Westerners, threw food at somebody, and Maharaji called him up, Ninkaroli Baba, and said, what, what's the matter? You're angry? And he said, yes, I'm very angry at the adharmic uh, activity of these people. Basically, we were all just, you know, clingy. Uh, and there was a lot of people to cling on to there. Uh, so he just had enough, and he, he was angry. So Maharaji said, well, you know what? I'm going to help you with your anger. anger. And he called for a glass of warm milk. And he said, and it came, and he said, "Here, but you have, you know, drink it." And the the, the what Ramdas got out of this, and what we all saw in that moment was, it really is like the relationship that Trungpa talks about, uh, um, guru and disciple is is a, it's it's active. Uh-huh. So you had to, in this case grab that glass of warm milk, take it to you, and drink it. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, that, to me, uh, you know, is, is the best example of right effort, mm-hmm. right? And even he was saying, you, you know, there is an action to take, you know, right action, right effort. So uh, I think that, that is, um, that's as practical and common sense as... Uh, one could get around, uh, you know, those particular um, subjects. Uh, last but not least, 
is right mindfulness. And and uh, I know, you know, uh, Sharon's longtime co-teacher and and uh, great friend, and they were in India together, uh, is uh, Joseph Goldstein. And Joseph's written a marvelous book uh, called Mindfulness that is, to me, the definitive. I, I have a lot of problems with mindfulness, the term that has become almost pop culture, wouldn't you say? Uh, I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing. Um, it's like guru. It's got, you know, yeah, he's the guru of uh, Coca-Cola now, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, mindfulness will, get, we did a, a, a mind-rolling a mind podcast around how mindfulness is being used by uh, Wall Street uh, traders to increase their uh, weekly take because yes. of being able to get more uh, power through mindfulness. So it's a boy. Can you uh, turn us around on, on mindfulness? <laughs> well, mindfulness uh, classically means a quality of awareness uh, where our perception of what's happening in the moment isn't distorted by bias, you know, like old fears, projection into the future, all these things that might come up that could really distort how we're seeing what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's a certain emotion coming up and historically we've been afraid of that emotion. So as soon as it comes up, we try to shut it down or we do project into the future, like something hurts and we think, oh, what's it going to feel like next month? And, mm. you know, so we're adding all that anticipation on top of what's happening. So there are lots of ways that uh, we add on to the present moment's experience. And um, I think you're right about Joseph's book. It's a phenomenal book. And uh, he would also say in a colloquial kind of way that mindfulness means looking for the add-ons, you know, what are we adding on to this experience right now? And, you know, can we let go of that add-on and just be with what is? And then uh, one of the things that we see in like this popularization of mindfulness is that what people talk about all the time is how much more fulfilling your life will be. You know, it's like if you're drinking a cup of tea and you're checking your email and you're on a conference call, at the same time, it's not a very fulfilling cup of tea. Whereas if you just drink the cup of tea and you feel the warmth of the teacup and you smell the tea and you taste the tea, it'll be much more fulfilling. So that is really true. But it's it's like classically, that's almost like a secondary benefit of mindfulness. Mindfulness was really designed so we could uh, have insight or understanding. You know, it's like if you're not fighting your experience all the time. And you're also not sucked into it all the time, then you can learn. You can keep learning about your emotional life, about cause and effect, about our connection, all of us to one another, how, you know, we really share so much more than uh, we might have thought and how uh, much we need one another in this interdependent universe and how much everything's changing all the time and how when we cling, it's a little like banging your head against the wall because nothing is ever going to stay the same and no one is ever going to stay the same. And so um, that's what mindfulness is, is classically known mm. for. Customer insight. And that's hardly ever talked about these days. Yeah. Hey, you know what you talked, because you, you said you talked about the add-ons and I think that there's a, you did that at uh, a recent uh, retreat that mm -hmm. we were at. And uh, talk about, and you gave some great examples, maybe even personal examples of the add-ons. I think that that's, 
that's something that we do yeah. so much. You know, one story, actually, it's a Joseph story in a way that I tell a lot is um, this time Joseph and I were in a, a retreat. We we're teaching a retreat together, and he and I were just sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea. And someone came into the kitchen in some distress, and he said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. And Joseph said, well, what happened? And, and he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people and it's never going to change. And Joseph <laughs> said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And it was really funny for me, like watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, uh, Joseph said something to him like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like painful enough to feel all that tension in your jaw. But on top of that, you know, we have, you know, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> or something like that. And so um, it's an enormous thing to be able to make that distinction between what's actually happening and everything we're adding onto it. And to be able to loosen the grip of all of those add-ons and to see more directly, oh, this is what's happening right now. Mm. And the bottom line is, folks, the Eightfold Path will lead us to, uh, at the very least, a way more uh, real, we, we can really uh, have reality uh, be much more present uh, rather than the projections that we uh, put upon uh, our life situation. And uh, so as a self-development progression, which is how I, I read that particular phrase and, and loved it, um, I, this ancient uh, thing from the Buddha is completely relevant to us today in terms of being able to transform our day-to-day -day lives and 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 as as you say so much, Sharon, just uh, realize that we are truly connected uh, in in so many different ways. So um, thank you for that uh, explanation of the eightfold path. Uh, thank you in, so much. It's a great topic. Yeah, in in a, in a ways that we can relate with it. Uh, on a day to day basis, and without joining any kind of cult, we don't have to join a cult. <laughs> <laughs> right to take advantage of of this and um uh and i also would suggest uh, sharon your your latest book uh is happiness and happiness in the workplace correct yeah it's called real happiness at work and it follows real happiness which, which was an early book yeah, yeah so uh Everybody, uh, go. Uh, you uh, here's where you go, and you'll help out supporting Sharon Salzberg uh, Meta Hour, which is the name of the podcast. As uh, and you'll go to mindpodnetwork.com/slash/sharon, and when you go there, you'll see a link to Amazon, and you can go ahead and buy Sharon's books there. And when you do that, a small portion will uh, then uh, go into the big piggy bank, mm -hmm. which uh, everyone will share that's uh, part of the network. And uh, Sharon, we have to do this again. 
Okay. This is fun. This gives, I mean, this is great for me. What an opportunity to share with you and uh, to uh, share with everybody out there that's listening. So I thank you and uh, we will see you next time, next week. Sharon, uh, the podcast, by the way, is a pretty regular basis. And a lot of them will be derived from different talks that Sharon has given. And then we'll have these sort of more extemporous kind of hangouts, which we'll do as well. So thank you, everybody, and see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.